Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, it's your quarterly update for all things IFRS, and I'm joined not by one, not by two, but three of our main partners in the world of IFRS. We've got Tony DeBell, Sandra Thompson, and a new person in the studio, Larry Dodak. So we're going to start with you, Tony. Welcome back. Thank you. IFRS 15 and 9, if you've got a year in 31st December, we're already three months in, so we must have learned so much more about the standard. Where are you seeing companies face challenges? I think the thing with IFRS, uh, IFRS 15 is that the devil is quite often in the detail. I think we're all aware of some of the significant areas where IFRS 15 is different to the previous standards. So, for example, the accounting for licences, the accounting for variable consideration, or whether you get revenue point in time over time. The sense that I've got from working through the the year-end, thinking about the disclosures in the annual financial statements for last year and so forth, is that some companies are still being surprised by some of the details, whether it's around something that meets the definition of a series, whether it's about contract combination or contract modification. There's just something in the detail. And so the sense I got from the year-end is that some companies have, have clearly finished the process, they've, they've They've done a good job uh, and they're ready to go. I think there are some other companies that are still thinking about it. I'm still seeing IFRS 15 memos. I think people are still being occasionally surprised by what comes out of their analysis. And so if I I think about looking ahead to the end of this quarter or for companies that report um, half yearly, so uh, the 30th of June, it's time is now short. The processes need to be finished. Uh, There may still be some... Uh, surprises, so companies need to make sure they've allocated enough resource to get it done. Looking forward to the end of the year, uh, a lot of the work so far has focused on recognition measurement. So is revenue going to be measured any differently? Is revenue going to be recognised in a different pattern? So the, the, the basic accounting. But IFRS 15 also includes some fairly significant additional disclosures. Uh, And in some cases, uh, if those disclosures weren't required before, even if the underlying accounting doesn't change, there may still be a need to tweak the systems to be able to collect the information to make the disclosures. Uh, And I think sort of January, February 2019 wouldn't be a very good time to be trying to do that. So I think uh, companies should perhaps be thinking about the year-end disclosures and making sure they've got the processes in place to capture the information. Yeah, I must admit, every time I open IFRS 15, I feel there seems to be another gem that comes out of it. I think, oh my God, I've never seen this paragraph before. What does this mean? Yeah, so good tip there. If you haven't started already thinking about disclosures, year-end feels like a long way off, but there could be more data you need to collect. So we are in the interim period now. Is there anything that people should think about with IS 34 and IFRS 15? So... Obviously, the guidance in in the IFRS world for interim financial information is IS34. The first thing I might say is just to caution folks and say that uh, local securities regulators may impose additional requirements, uh, particularly additional disclosure requirements, in connection with new standards. And therefore, people should be aware of what the relevant local securities regulators' perspective is. The underlying principle in IS34 is that uh, interim financial information is an update. So it just updates the information that was included in the most recent annual financial statements. 
there are some specific disclosure requirements. Uh, one of them is to disclose the nature and effect of changes in accounting policies. And so that's obviously specifically relevant to adopting IFRS 9 and IFRS 15. Uh, and I think I would expect to see companies explaining uh, how their policies have changed for the significant areas of revenue recognition and explaining the effect on the financial statements. The explanation of the effect may differ depending on the transition method that's been adopted. So if the comparatives have been restated under the full retrospective approach, then you would expect an, an, an explanation of how last year's revenue numbers were different to this year's, uh, an explanation of the impact on opening retained earnings, perhaps an explanation of the impact on the balance sheet. You might think differently about the disclosures uh, if the modified retrospective model is applied, so the comparatives are not restated. And I think in, in that circumstance, obviously, revenue last year and this year may not be comparable, so there'll be a need to explain that uh, and think about what other di uh, disclosures you might give to explain the effect of the change in the current year. One final thought on IFRS 15 is that it made a consequential amendment to IS 34. IS 34 now requires disclosure of disaggregated information about revenue that would otherwise not be required until the annual financial statement. So there is a very specific disclosure requirement included in IS 34 as a result of IFRS 15. Okay, wow, so keep a little eye out for the consequential amendment there. Okay, so taking you away from IFRS 15, I know it's your favourite Tony, but we're, we're here to talk about other things than just revenue. <laughs> Anything else for people doing interims at the moment? Yeah, actually, I, I can move away from revenue, which um, I'm quite fond of, and talk about oh, uh, income taxes, which I'm, <laughs> which I'm even more fond of. <laughs> And so something to bear in mind for, for, for interims for companies that have a business in, in the United States uh, is that um, U.S. tax reform obviously happened at back end of last year. The, the changes to U.S. tax legislation were enacted just before the end of the year and were therefore reflected, or some of the impact was therefore reflected in 2017 financial statements. Particularly the change in rate would have been reflected together with uh, any companies that were subject to the toll charge would have estimated the expense. But that's not the end of the story. So moving into the first quarter of this year, the first thing I'd say is that a number of the changes to US tax legislation, particularly in connection with the new in international provisions, are, uh, will be treated uh, by many companies as a period item. So the impact will be recorded during the year either as an additional deduction or maybe as an extra sort of effectively penalty tax charge. And so one of the things that companies will have to think about is the impact of that tax legislation on the tax charge for the first quarter. The other thing that uh, I think companies should think about is that obviously the legislation was enacted very close to the last year end. There may have been some estimates required in order to do the accounting at 31st December. And so I think companies just need to think about whether anything has happened to suggest that those estimates need to be revised, and if they do, making the relevant disclosures to explain it. Yeah, it was a busy Christmas period with the US tax report coming in quite so close. Okay, perfect, thank you very much, Tony. Thank you. Okay, so now moving on to Sandra. We just heard from Tony around uh, IFRS 15, but not to forget the other brand new standard we got, IFRS 9, financial instruments. What are you seeing there in the, the first quarter? Thanks, Ruth. 
So probably some of the same things that Tony said, actually. A bit like IFRS 15, the devil can be in the detail. Um, probably a bit like IFRS 15, it takes longer, more effort, time, resource than people perhaps initially estimated. If I start with interims, obviously we're coming up to Q1s, what, what do companies need to disclose? I-34 doesn't have any specific requirements as regards IFRS 9 and what needs to be given. There's a general requirement to, to give effect, to talk about the nature and effect of changes in accounting policy. And I think the key here is what's impacted this particular company. So make it personal. How was it for you, if you like? When it comes to accounting policies, there are some choices. For example, over whether to restate comparatives, over whether to adopt IFRS 9's hedge accounting or to stay on IS 39, and whether to use some of the simplifications for impairment and low credit risk, for example, or the simplified model for trade receivables, etc. So make those accounting policies specific to the entity. And then there are some key judgments. What's a significant increase in credit risk would be one. How have you modelled multiple forward-looking economic scenarios? So don't just produce a boilerplate, make them specific. And then in terms of what else, I think the level of granularity really depends on what's had the impact. So certainly for a bank, we'd expect some narrative and some numbers on the impact of both classification and measurement, what's moving between cost and fair value, and also on impairment particularly as most banks are not going to restate comparatives, kind of bridging the closing IFRS 39 to the opening IFRS 9. There is a disclosure requirement in IFRS 7 that will apply year-end that requires a kind of table that starts with IFRS 39 number, says what's changed for classification, what's the impairment, what's your ending amount. I think to put that in interims is a really good idea because it gives a reader of the financial statements the complete picture. And it helps you out. You don't need to just think about it a year-end. Well, start now. Exactly, exactly. You've got it ahead anyway. When it comes to year-end itself, we've got a couple of early adopters, a small number of early adopters. What have we seen from those? Well, I think when you actually come to do all of the notes you need to do at year-end, they can be harder to populate than you think. And it's only when you start putting numbers in that you realise you might not have the numbers, particularly as a lot of them need to be given by class, so make sure you've got enough granularity. And then some of the numbers actually don't look right, which makes you go back to think about, well, have I calculated them right in the first place? So start early. There's additional audit effort involved, clearly. So communicate with your auditors and probably expect an increased audit fee. Yeah. Oh, one of the common themes there was definitely, you know, there is d- additional disclosure, very different disclosure. So it's not just thinking about changing your, you know, what your annual financials look like, but have you actually captured the data enough so you can populate the tables anyway? I think that's right. The only other thing I'll feed in, the Canadian banks have early adopted IFRS 9, so they have October year-ends and have already done it. And I was listening to some of the analyst presentations and we are hearing analysts ask questions. They, okay. they want to understand the impact and the change yeah. and what it implies going forward. So expect some analyst questions. Brilliant. <laughs> it's all, all positive, all exciting. And do you, just from discussions you're having with clients and teams, is there anything you think, hang on, in IFRS 9 people really are missing this? Any misconceptions or... Yeah, the, the top of my list would be intergroup loans. So if you have separate financial statements under IFRS and you have a parent that's given a loan to a subsidiary or maybe to an associate, then if that loan is in the scope of IFRS 9, so it's an ordinary loan, perhaps with principal interest, no votes attached, then IFRS 9's impairment requirements apply. And it can be difficult to calculate the IFRS 9 impairment number for an intergroup loan. Some of the models and methods you might use normally to, for trade receivables or for other loans don't work very well for intergroup loans. It can have a potentially quite big impact and it can impact things like distributable profits. 
I'm sometimes asked, well, won't the number be immaterial? Surely if the subsidiary can't repay, the, the parents just yeah. can put some more money in and you know, we can give them longer to pay. And I think the answer to that question is not necessarily. There are situations in, in which the number could be immaterial, but certainly not all of the time. We have a separate YouTube video specifically right. devoted to mm-hmm. group loans where we go into a bit more detail. And we've got an in-brief and in-depth that I suggest people look at. But again, the devil's in the detail. It's not easy. Don't forget it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's you, you. It's just something so easy to miss, yeah. isn't it? Into group loans, you just concentrate, you know, on your group and don't maybe think about, about the separate. Yeah. yeah, and particularly because of the impact on distributable profits, it can yeah. be important. Okay, so definitely one to watch there. Thanks for the great tip. Anything else, not can be IFRS nine or away from IFRS nine, that you're seeing maybe from the IFRIC or the ISB that people should be aware of this time of year? Yeah, it's not big cut couple. First, hot off the press, IFRIC met earlier and they finalised an agenda decision that's related to IFRS 9 and income statement presentation. So this applies to entities that have interest income as a revenue item, so typically financial services, not the corporate sector. And the IFRIC has said, when you move to IFRS 9, there was a consequential amendment to IS1, and that requires a separate line item for interest revenue calculated using the effective interest method. And that means only assets that amortise cost or debt instruments fair value through OCI. It does not mean anything at fair value through P&L, whether that's fair value option, whether that's failed SPPI, um, whether that's derivatives not in hedge relationships. So now um, entities in that situation will need a separate line item for interest revenue that only includes interest on amortised cost, fair value OCI and debt instruments. The obvious question is, well, can you have extra line yeah. items, particularly as under IS39, a lot of banks put other things through interest. Yeah. The IFRIC hasn't explicitly answered that question. They've left it to us. We think you can. So if you want additional line items, you can have them. But you need to be very clear as to what's in those line items and how the numbers have been calculated. Yeah. And obviously that affects the format of the income statement. For a bank, their interest margin is often a KPI, so it affects a KPI. And it needs to come in for Q1, so don't forget it. The other one I might flag is nothing to do with IFRS 9, and it's nothing to do with banks either. (laughs) This is supply of finance. So supply of finance is not a new issue, but it's come to the fore, received some press attention recently, particularly over a fairly large company that failed and had supply of finance, and was it transparent enough? But also ESMA had an enforcement decision as regards supply of finance, so it's very much most in people's minds. What is supplier finance? Yeah. I hear you ask. I love it. I don't know what else going to think. I could just sit here and you could do it yourself sometimes. But it's a corporate with some kind of payables, typically trade payables, enters into a three-way transaction with the, the supplier who's, to which he owes the money in a bank, under which the bank will pay the supplier often earlier than they otherwise would have got their money, and then the corporate will pay the bank in due course. Now, the question from the corporate's perspective is, previously it had a trade payable, is it still a trade payable, or the fact it's now going to pay the bank, is this bank finance, so perhaps a a bank debt number, and whichever way you go on that, what disclosures are needed, particularly if it's it's not bank finance, you need to give disclosure about this additional source of financing. There's no one-size-fits-all here, particularly on the first question. We have a practice aid which works through the considerations but it is an area of focus. So if you're using supply finance, think about if you made the correct accounting judgment and all the disclosures up to the mark. Brilliant. Okay, but we've got a practice aid to help people out there. Thank you very much, Sandra. 
So, last but not least, we're introducing Larry to the podcast studio. So, Larry, we've just heard from Tony and Sandra about the exciting world of IFRS 15 and 9, but we don't want to forget that the IFRS book is a big beast and there is more than just those two new accounting standards. So, anything you'd particularly tell people to look out for in Q1? Well, in our space, we certainly don't have a new standard to implement like IFRS 9 or IFRS 15, but M&A is clearly top of mind to our constituents. It's top of mind to our clients, as evidenced in the most recent CEO Global Survey, where 42% of CEOs globally and 69% of CEOs in the U.S. indicated that they plan on doing an acquisition in 2018. And if you consider strategic alliances and joint ventures, where roughly half of CEOs indicated they plan to do one this year, the numbers are up pretty significantly in terms of a focus on acquisitions. But M&A is also top of mind to regulators. ESMA, in its uh, most recent publication, indicated that the most significant enforcement priority, after the disclosure impact of the new standards, of course, is the recognition, measurement, and disclosure issues under the business combination standard IFRS 3. Okay, perfect. So on that, uh, so thinking of M&A and IFRS 3, you know, what are your tips? What should people really watch out for? Well, some of the things that they specifically mentioned was, you know, consistency between the assumptions used to measure intangibles in your purchase price allocation and applying those same types of assumptions for impairment testing and determining useful lives. Other disclosure items that they mentioned had to do with measurement period adjustments and exactly why the business combination accounting was incomplete, disclosures around bargain purchase gains, which the standard indicates are intended to be occasional, but sometimes happen a little bit more frequently than we would expect. And of course, our favorites within our, uh, within our little group is determining whether continued consideration is really consideration transferred that should be included as part of the acquisition, or whether that represents compensation for services after the acquisition. It's an oldie but a goodie. Yes, it is. <laughs> and IFRS 3, it's funny because it's been around for ages, but it's a tricky standard and people, you know, don't think it through or don't disclose enough, I think, so people ask questions. So last thing, parting line, Larry, for the whole podcast, anything else that you should you want to tell people about in Q1? Well, I, I probably want to come back to the Tax Reform Act um, and that probably represents the most significant tax reform legislation in the U.S. in the last 30 years. And while it's certainly been keeping our friends busy in applying IS-12, it certainly has a major impact for business valuations and impairment testing. And a couple of things to keep in mind here. Just because the corporate tax rate has dropped to 21% does not mean that all companies are now all of a sudden going to see an increase in value. Limitations on net interest expense deductions, limitations on deductibility of net operating losses, even reductions in the value of NOLs themselves, all can negatively affect value. And further, many companies already had tax planning strategies to take advantage of lower tax rates, so the effect may not be nearly as significant for all companies in in all jurisdictions. The other thing I'd mention is taxes is only one input into the cash flow model So other changes as a result of the Tax Reform Act, such as changes in capital expenditures, changes in compensation models, changes in sales forecasts, changes due to competition as a result of the the Act, should also be considered. The bottom line is companies need to consider their specific 
facts and circumstances and figuring out what the tax reform act will be for them. Brilliant. So we heard there from you and Tony about US tax reform. So, but real important message there, it isn't just deferred tax. It isn't just IS-12 that you've got to think about. It has broader implications. Thank you so much for joining us, Larry. So that was our quarterly update podcast. We heard from Tony and Sandra about IFRS 15 and 9 and also some bits that have been happening at the IFRIC. And then lastly, we heard from Larry to talk about, you know, don't forget IFRS 3, especially as we're seeing lots of increase in M&A activity. For some of the publications mentioned today and for lots more information, please go to pwc.com forward slash IFRS. I've been your host, Ruth Pretty. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.